from the journeys of belonging to blackness. 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 I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Good day, good day, good day. Joining us is Dr. Natalie LeBlanc. Natalie is a researcher, public health practitioner, and assistant professor in HIV prevention science at the University of Rochester School of Nursing. Natalie's research and practitioner work, which is strengthened by her 15-year career in public health, has focused on health promotion and disease prevention among neglected populations, both in the United States and abroad. She has managed programs aimed at disease prevention and eradication in Africa, worked to integrate HIV testing and linkage to care strategies in the New York City Health Department, and conducted a needs assessment for a universal hospital-based HIV testing program in Ghana, West Africa publishing research papers and facilitating fora on health disparity in sexual health promotion, Natalie is currently fellow and principal investigator for a project funded by the Research Education Institute for Diverse Scholars, which is supported through the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS at Yale University. Her current project focuses on provider-initiated HIV prevention and sexual health promotion for couples. And if that isn't enough, Natalie is a co-principal investigator for not one, but two NIH, which is the National Institutes of Health, funded projects, including one on the use of antiviral HIV medications among Black and Latinx women. Welcome, Dr. Natalie LeBlanc. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time out of your extremely busy schedule to share a bit about your work with our listeners. I'm always intrigued by guests who are engaged in projects designed to educate and uplift African descended communities. When I think about your presentations, your discussions, your writings, whether the topic is on attitudes and practices as it relates to sexual health or health disparities among vulnerable and or African-descended populations. I know you do work around MSMs, which are men who have sex with other men, or on issues or topics related to women and children. Your work reveals the need to further examine the underpinnings <laughs> of racial, gender, educational, and socioeconomic factors that lead to the disparities we see today. And really, this is what I appreciate, how such research can really inform policy and programming to make the changes that we need to see. So I think it's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me and offering it. Like I told you before, I think you're awesome. Right about now. <laughs> Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. Natalie, talk to us a bit about your call to adventure in the medical profession. Perhaps there are two motivations that go to you. First, your blackness. And second, your health consciousness. In what ways did your family influence you? My mother was my first teacher. She taught me how to write. We always had books in the house. 
people on the walls. And I remember we went to a lot of rallies too when we were younger. There was a poster in one of our rooms, Freedom Fighters, anywhere from the Caribbean, from Africa, in America, all over our wall. So we were kind of surrounded in the space of thinking globally about what it means to be a Black person. I've recently come to terms with being unapologetically Black because at a point in life, you just get tired of seeing the same stuff in terms of disparities, in terms of injustices. And even though I focus very specifically on sexual health promotion and even more specifically on HIV prevention and treatment, you know, when we look at who's affected, irrespective of sexual orientation, we see that as Black people. My mom, she was a nurse for over 30-something years, so being health conscious is not new to me. Both of my parents followed Dick Gregory back in the day, and so we did not eat red meat or pork. We did not eat dairy, you know, being health conscious. My mom, I don't know what made her go into nursing, but she became a nurse at a time where nurses got certificates, and they would go through a hospital-based program knowing that she wanted to be a nurse, but she also traveled. Before she met my father, she was traveling to the Caribbean. She was just traveling. And I remember my uncle, around the time of her funeral, was like, your mom, she was the first person in our family to travel, having to get a passport, and he took her to the airport. Like That was a event for them that continued. And I think kind of relates to my love of traveling and wanting to live in another country. I love that your sense of adventure Your interest in being a global citizen and traveling came from your mother. Can we take a moment and hold space for her? Your mom recently passed. I think it's important for folks to learn a little bit more about her since she's had such a significant influence on you. My mother passed. She was African-American. Her people are from North Carolina. She would tell you I'm from Harlem. In a way, we knew it was coming, but you always think you have more time. Your mom, a nurse and a practitioner who's focused on prevention and focused on being health conscious. Talk to us a bit about your dad, who he is and how he also influenced your journey. I remember my father when I would come back from school saying some stuff. We're going back and forth. And I think I'm like seven years old, nine years old. So he's always challenging and being raised in this environment that it's okay to question My father was born in Haiti. He was raised in the Dominican Republic. Having been raised in the Dominican Republic and coming into New York City, his English was somewhat limited, but, you know, had still skipped a grade when he got here and ended up graduating at the age of 20, majoring in African-American studies because he knew he was going to have Black kids in this country. We know the historical significance, constant geopolitical tensions that persist between these two nations does play a critical role in the way people from both the Dominican Republic and Haiti think about and talk about their Blackness. So how did your dad end up in the Dominican Republic in the first place? Because between the 50s and 60s, what was happening in Haiti is that you had this dictatorship. They were trying to murder my grandfather, who was a journalist, and wrote against the government. My grandmother, who didn't marry my grandfather until she was 30, and you know that was old back in the day, like really old. She was a pharmacist before she met him. She was pretty well-educated, and they had to flee. They had to leave. Eventually, my grandparents were separated because he was in hiding. And my grandmother is all throughout the Caribbean, all through Latin America, so my father is Spanish-speaking as well. And they land in Dominican Republic. And so he wouldn't see his parents for another decade. 
that must have been hard on your dad to move around as a young child and then learning the circumstances under which his family's safety was predicated. How do you think his early experiences played a role in your parents' relationship, especially since you mentioned that your mom was African-American and then him being Caribbean? What does that bring to a union with a Black American woman who's loud and, and just, you know, she's going to let you know how it is. But she's also coming from a space of having to build identity. She didn't know her biological father, and I know that bothered her for a long time. In terms of her complexion, is very light-skinned Black women. And not having anybody in your family that looks like that, so it's like, where am I fitting in this? What you're saying about both of your parents' early experiences is compelling, particularly around paternal estrangement. What was the relationship like between the matriarchs of the family, specifically between, say, your mother and your grandmother and her being from the South? My grandmother had my mother at the age of 17, so she was pregnant in the South, and she only had a third grade education because she was sick for a long time. At a certain point, she's like, I need to get out of here. I'm going to make a life for my child. At 17, she knew this. I need to leave. Along with a lot of Black Americans leaving out of the South at that time because of opportunities here in the North, she comes to New York City, eventually calls for her mother to come help her raise her child. Before my grandmother passed, I had the opportunity to interview her for a class. Oh, nice. And, and still have the recordings. You know, she talks about just working and bringing my mother to work with her. She was working at the factory, how there was a push to get people on welfare. She was on it for like a week. And she told the guy, I don't want people telling me what to do. I'm off this. And so I think that for the women in my family, particularly my grandmothers, they've had the experiences of having to travel and negotiate and experience certain traumas to be uncomfortable and realize that in order for me to ensure my legacy is going to survive, I need to be uncomfortable. Pulling it all together, I see there are certain trends throughout your origin story. So not only that your mom was a nurse, but also your dad, whose father was a journalist and his mom, who was a pharmacist. So we have the health and well-being or health consciousness focus. But both of your parents also placed a very high value on education and came from families that chose to migrate for better opportunities, whether that be from Haiti to the Dominican Republic and then to the United States or the northern migration from the south to New York. It's about legacy. That's what I'm hearing about your journey thus far, or at least your call to adventure. It's about legacy. At my mother's funeral, my father spoke. There's three things that we wanted out of our children. One, we wanted them to be proud of their Blackness, proud of who they are in this world. We wanted them to be educated. That was important. They had to have a good foundation in terms of education the other thing about our family is that we were not raised in a religious household. My parents had came to the conclusion when they met before they had children, something that my father said years ago, I'm not going to add to your oppression. I'm not going to do that to you. And both of them were coming from very religious backgrounds. My father, being from the Caribbean and Haitian, living in the Dominican Republic, they're very Catholic-based, but also I know my grandmother also practiced voodoo. 
And then from our Black American side, they're coming from the Baptist Protestant tradition. So they took elements of that and tried to help enrich us in treating people the way you want to be treated, but not judging people. Just don't do it. I can presume that growing up in the households that you grew up in, why you've pursued an education, but how did you become interested specifically in the work that you're doing today? What is it about the research as it relates to HIV prevention, eradication of different kinds of health disparity work? Where did that come from? From a young age, I traveled. I remember first moving to Brooklyn and going to this children's dance performance with Marie Brooks, Caribbean dance theater. I ended up taking dance classes. And so this very tall statuous woman from Martinique and had lived in Trinidad. She's grooming these young people to be just successful in life through dance. Through that program, I became a dance company member and we traveled with that as well. So we spent a month in Martinique. I was 12 Over the course of my years, I was just kind of leaving the country and seeing the different ways that people would live. As a parent, I think it was brave that your parents put you on a plane to Martinique at the age of 12. Your parents' support of your passion for dance as a young person propelled your experiences around seeing the world and learning about culture. Did this continue into adulthood? In college, we had a semester with this Writers of the Caribbean course where we went to Trinidad Carnival. So going to Trinidad Carnival and being from Brooklyn, New York, you see Eastern Parkway, so when you see the real thing. Your trip to TNT was one that was transformative. What I got out of that is that I really love Juve. I really love the history behind Juve. Carnival has always been speaking against oppression. The way we're moving our bodies is protest particularly as Black women, we shouldn't feel that type of freedom. This is what we get from patriarchy. By moving my hips to you, it's sexual. But to me, it's I have hips and therefore they're moving. Our whole being becomes a way of protest in this space. A friend of mine, she's from Guyana. She's also religious. So she says, you know how you have this outer body spiritual experience? You're in that moment and you start to transcend. Mm. And the way she described it, I was like, oh, exactly <laughs> what happened. You're all, you have a whole outer body experience. I was 19 at the time. It was this transcendence. While at Trinity College, your perspective and passions became more refined, understanding notions around culture, systems of oppression, and religion. But how did this learning later translate as a medical practitioner? What got me to this place, I loved Peace Corps. So that's what eventually ended up happening. So they had designated for me to go to... Kazakhstan or one of these stand countries. I had to look it up because I'm like, I don't know where this is. And so <laughs> that didn't happen because my health stuff didn't go through. This was late 1999, early 2000. They were just like, do you want to go to Ghana, West Africa? And I said, okay. And so I go to Ghana and there's this Egyptian. She was another peaceful volunteer, but of North African extraction and, and She's like, the North is better. I was like, really? She's like, yeah, go up North. Which was interesting because the southern part of Ghana reminded me so much of the Caribbean. My father comes and we're walking through Kumasi. Now, I personally didn't really like Kumasi because they're rough and it reminded me of New York City. But I'm just like, no, one of this is the tribe that fought off the English 
for a decade. Mm. They're something. They're great people. They got that, you know, the edge. <laughs> Get out the way, you know. Uh, <laughs> so that's happening. And But my father and I are walking through and he's like, this reminds me of Haiti because it's so lush and green. And even the food, the plantains, the rice and beans. I mean, it was all very familiar. So you felt connected with the diasporic South. So yeah. it wasn't as diasporic in the North or could you see other influences um, from other groups? At that time, there was the Northern region and Tamale was in the Northern region and this is capital city. I got placed in the site Northeast of there, but our training was further North. And so these folks, some of them have the history of actually being brought down from Niger and Burkina Faso. They know the history of them being brought into slavery. So a lot of these people in some of these areas are descendants of people who were brought in from somewhere else. That's powerful. Oh, yeah. That's powerful because when we think about being on the U.S. side, this hemisphere, Mm -hmm. people kind of talk about the forced migration and enslavement right, Mm -hmm. of Africans to this place. And that there's a particular kind of memory loss that has happened when you're disbanded, when you are forcibly separated from your people, you're mixed in with groups of people that speak different languages, come from different regions. Oftentimes, when we think about the role of colonialism on the continent, that is not top of mind to think there are people who are also descendants of those who were forcibly migrated and enslaved. And that they didn't have to cross the Atlantic, but stayed. You had that population there. And then also in the North, they're very Muslim and traditionalist. This is what you see in this particular region, whereas the other regions are very Christian-based. And that's very strategic. A lot of your minerals and resources are in the South. I actually like the North better. I'm more familiar with it. Having to learn to speak the language, I had to explain to people, no, this is not coming naturally to me. I am American. (laughs) Um, You mentioned growing up outside the traditional confines of Christianity. Even your grandmother engaged in African spiritual practices. Seems that these influenced the ways you feel spiritually connected to the people in Ghana. How would you say the people are treated in this region? So these people who are of Muslim and traditionalist backgrounds had poor access to water, were not as educated as the rest of the population. And seeing sometimes the way that people who are not from that region but working in this region would treat people there, I was very mindful of that. After my Peace Corps experience, I stayed and worked with the Carter Center on tranquilliasis, which is also known as guinea worm disease. And it's a waterborne disease. It's not like anything you will ever see in the U.S., It's a waterborne disease, poor quality water. Within nine months, there's a worm emerging out of the body. It's hard to even wrap your head around it unless you see it. So you have people and children with worms coming out of their bodies because of water they drunk last year. That's intense. How did you handle seeing that? Health education to connect behaviors and then having empathy. I was a technical assistant with the Carter Center having to engage with the health system and understanding you have people there who are really trying to do good work, but then you have a subset of folks who are trying to do good work, but are caught up in wanting to make money off of something or trying to exploit the situation or just being really difficult to work with. Engaging in health and humanitarian work is often riddled with many challenges. What did you learn at this early stage in your career? Having that experience at 23, made me more aware of what comes into play when you're talking about people's health. 
when you're trying to advocate for people's health. It's not just the individual. It's the context that they're living in. It's the policy that's there. It's the other people who we depend on to do that work. I think that trajectory laid the foundation of where I am today. Would you say this experience in northern Ghana goaded you to focus on HIV? While I was there as a technical assistant, what we knew about HIV was not a new disease at that time. And I was really interested in HIV, more so the the broader sense of infectious diseases, Mm -hmm. you know, these things that we don't see but are communicable. At a district-wide meeting, they were talking about these HIV cases, a larger HIV rate than what we see in the capital in terms of infectious disease that didn't make sense. Why does a smaller district have a higher rate than a capital city? They kind of dug a little deeper, realizing that the district is on this route from the coast of Ghana going all the way up into North Central Africa. So we know in terms of disease patterns that at times when you have a lot of transit and transient people, sometimes you see outbreaks and sometimes you see large cases of certain diseases, HIV being one of them. So that was happening. And then I came back to the States. After that, I was trying to find work. And it was really difficult because people have difficulty connecting global health to local health. In the United States, we have difficulty in making that connection. In the U.S., we often tend to be somewhat culturally narcissistic and myopic. (laughs) Managing people, managing staff was hard for people to see those skills being relevant here. I wanted to go into health. I knew I wanted to have a clinical degree. So I was kind of weighing options as to, do I want to go to med school? Do I want to become a nurse? Do I want to be a nurse practitioner? Do I want to become a PA? I knew I wanted that skill set. I was looking for degree programs that would allow me to do the nursing with the master's in public health, and I couldn't find that. So I ended up applying to master's in public health programs and ended up going to Emory. Went to Emory and knew that for my thesis, I wanted to go back to Ghana. I wanted to understand what is this HIV problem? A few of the professors was like, oh, you can do this quantitative analysis of are the two HIV rates really statistically different and da-da-da. I'm like, you know what, let me apply for this global field experience grant that I ended up getting $1,000 or something, but it helped to go back to Ghana to figure out what's happening. So I reached out to the people who I worked with when I was at Carter Center who were on the ground, Ghanaian medical doctors who were heading the equivalent of the health department, but also the hospital as well. Right. So they're like, we were thinking about rolling out routinized HIV testing. And so maybe you can come and find out what would be barriers to that. And I said, well, that sounds great. And so my thesis was around doing a needs assessment for hospital barriers and facilitators to routinize HIV screening. So I ended up interviewing a lot of healthcare providers and then also speaking to people from the local health department, community members doing focus groups and that kind of thing. So I had all this data, did my transcriptions and everything in country, and then providing them with a report before I left. I thought that was important. So no one's telling me this stuff. I'm just kind of like, this is what you should do. But now we know as part of community engagement, that is what you do. And so that's kind of how I got into HIV work. Your professional journey thus far was first working in northern Ghana in community health, then around infectious disease, graduate studies on HIV research. What led you to focus on couples specifically? While at Emory, I took several classes with this woman by the name of Susan Allen, who was doing couple-based work in Zambia and Rwanda. For my second year, I ended up working with her program stateside 
And she had this cohort of what we call serodiscordant couples, couples in which one person is living with HIV and the other person isn't. And she had this cohort, now it's probably close to 30-something years. Is it for couples where one partner is living with HIV to not infect the other partner? When you see transmission within the couple, it's because someone's off their medication or the transmission didn't even happen within the couple is because the HIV-negative partner went out of the relationship and contracted HIV somewhere else. She was the first person that would talk about the work, but when she spoke about her research, she was a medical doctor by training. She talks about when she first goes into Rwanda, it was at a time where HIV didn't have a name. So they knew there was this bug being transmitted sexually. So she's testing these women, and these women tell her, you know what, it's cute and all that you want to be up in here This is definitely not how she was saying it, but this is the story that I have in my head of what went down because these were African women who were like, that's cute and all that you want to come here and test us for STIs and sexually transmitted infections and all this other stuff. But if you don't get our partners in here, this means nothing. Because it's a gendered issue. When you're talking about heterosexual coupling, it's about, oh, that's woman stuff. (laughs) Right. And so luckily this medical doctor had the cultural humility What people are realizing here in the States is that your providers need to have a level of cultural humility. She doesn't say this term, but that's what it was. She had cultural humility to say, you know what, they're right. And so she starts a research program around testing couples. It was through her that I start to learn about this couple-based work. After I graduated, I had already made the mental commitment to stay in the States. I ended up working for the New York City Health Department. While there, I started taking classes for nursing because that was still in my mind. But I learned about health disparities here in the United States. I really had no idea. So it took me going out of the country, having these other experiences, and then coming back to work under Mary Bassett. She was the health commissioner for New York City recently. At the time I worked with her, she was the deputy commissioner for health promotion and disease prevention. Earlier, you mentioned your challenges finding work in the U.S. because folks at the time struggled to see the connections of your global experiences and how that would translate. So how did you convince folks otherwise? They saw that I had global health experience. And Mary Bassett has spent 20 years in Zimbabwe in health promotion. She's like, this is a person who understands global health. And so being a Black woman, she was shocked by the racial disparity that we were seeing in the data in New York City. Working under her for two years, I started learning just across the board of chronic disease, but also seeing these differences. I say ethno-racial because race is a social construct, but ethnicity and culture is what we're really getting at. Differences, particularly around infant mortality, around maternal mortality, around diabetes. I mean, just everything. The intersection of these disparities speak to Black life in the U.S. and how really these ethnocultural isms and racism and so on are public health issues too. Now, what did you learn from your work with Deputy Commissioner Bassett? So after working with her for some time, I get that health disparity lens from her, and then I move over to the Bureau of HIV. So the first thing when I get there, I'm like, listen, there's a strategy called couple-based HIV testing and counseling. We should consider it in the HIV testing unit. And it just went over people's heads. With everything you've shared, couple-based is the way to go. Where do you think this refusal stemmed from? I don't know if it's because it was coming out of my mouth. Maybe if it came out of somebody else's mouth, would have been Mm. legitimate. No, it just went over folks' head. And so I think there was legal issues. I think that 
even being back here in New York City or New York, I realized that's the first thing people go to is to see the legal. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot when it comes to these considerations. You present sound research and folks aren't really ready to receive it. So how do you overcome that sort of hurdle? It's at that time that I learned about the plight of Black and Hispanic men who have sex with men. I had not realized what we see in terms of high HIV rates among this population. And what I also noted, too, is that we have these LGBTQ labels. I'm of the belief that they are not applicable to all populations. Listeners are familiar with LGBTQIA labels, but can you explain where does the term MSM come from? The reason why we have the term men who have sex with men is because not all of them are identifying as gay and bisexual. And it's not because they're in denial. It's because as HIV prevention researchers, we have not appreciated the fact that people have different ways of processing their sexuality and how that looks in the real world. That's interesting, considering social labels carry historical, political, and cultural meanings depending on where folks are geographically located. Labels are discussed differently in various countries in Africa, for example. When I lived in Ghana, I came across people. I always wondered how would their experience be if they were in the States when you have very feminine men. A colleague of mine who is from Niger does research in Niger, and she uses the term trans women just so that people in the United States would kind of get a sense of what she's talking about. But she's like, in Niger, these women don't call themselves that. They don't. Yes, they're born male. Yes, they present as female, but they're not calling themselves trans anything. And that's the issue, right, with social labels and the ways they're constructed. In effect, they can serve as hindrances to some communities and can lead to various attitudes and behaviors as it relates to testing and health interventions. I fundamentally believe, again, going back to just my cultural upbringing, but also my influences and having met different people in the diaspora, that a lot of the language that we use is out of Western culture. It's coming out of this Eurocentric Western culture. And I think particularly as Black people, we struggle with in terms of our identity. And some of it is not applicable to us. And so I think what happens... I think, is that when you're telling a Black man who has sex with men that, oh, you're gay, and he's not taking that in, first we want to label this person, oh, it's internalized homophobia, which may be an element of that because of the society we live in. Whereas, no, he likes sometimes having sex with men, sometimes having sex with women, some has sex with trans individuals. His sexuality is just non-heteronormative, and that's the term I tend to use. When I kind of think about the path you've taken It's not even serendipity. On the one hand, you can think about it like that because you were just sort of open to the universe of experiences to say, oh, okay, we're in Trinidad doing carnival. Okay, Peace Corps, fine, let's try to check out Ghana. You've been on this path. You interacted and connected with folks that have still kind of been around this space, the space around African-descendant communities, whether you're actually on the continent or as part of the diaspora on this side of the world, looking to really kind of think about community, same way as you were talking about your grandfather being a journalist, talking about the experiences of people under dictatorship, talking about your maternal grandmother kind of reflecting upon systems of care. And the lack of, as you're framing it, cultural humility around people who are part of the state assistance 
programs and then just saying, you know what, I don't think I want to be a part of that because the confines of these systems aren't necessarily supportive of me. I think it's just sort of interesting, this particular path that you've taken, the opportunities that were presented to you, but there's an undercurrent across all of these different kinds of experiences from childhood up till now. And to me, it seems like being an African descendant plays a role in how you even understand this work. Because in many ways, even though you are of African descent traversing these spaces, you're still U.S., you're still American, and you're going into these communities, and you're an outsider, Mm -hmm. and you're a woman. In Ghana was the first time I felt American, and the first time I really felt like I experienced sexism. I mean, it's it's something. (laughs) It is really, really something. Even though there were a number of things that were very comfortable and very familiar, there were still elements from just like, wow. And I would see women who are well-educated and in positions of power having to humble themselves in the presence of men. We see that here too. So it's not like it doesn't exist here, but it was just really interesting to see. Even with all of that, I still go back. Part of my work earlier this year was visiting. Again, I hadn't been since 2011 and now have a great team of academics in Ghana who are interested in couple-based approaches. Ghana has adopted couples, HIV testing and counseling as a national policy. the road. So Natalie, what's your passion? I like thinking. Unfortunately, we don't have as much time to do that, to really think about the world's problems and how we can solve them. (laughs) You are not only a practitioner, but you're also an academic. And so for folks, they're like, but that's what you do. You think, (laughs) right? So what do you mean? So I think at times you get caught up with the minutia of stuff, the day-to-day answering emails. Luckily, my university gave me a pretty good startup package where I'm not obligated to teach for few years, even though I've been approached <laughs> several times. I'm like, no. And so that's the other thing is learning how to say no. In a roundabout way, I'm talking about my passion being self-care and taking care of self. And this part of my life, thinking through and acting on what can become future passions and understanding that there's a lot going on in the world and it's easy to get sucked in. You've heard me speak self-care is self-love and the importance of having explicit practices around really self-preservation, showing up in these different spaces as a Black person, a woman. To talk to men in particular and couples, people go through some stuff, a lot of heavy things, even if you are in a place where, okay, this is about research so that the research could be used to design programs to help to inform policies and different kinds of health practices that's going to better these individuals as well as people after them. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to carry. Being able to have a meditative practice and to make space for yourself so that you can experience some sort of restoration is so critically important. What are some of the lessons that you learned along the way in terms of doing this work or just even you coming into your own as a professional in this space? 
there's a project I inherited from a, a mentor, a colleague of mine who left the university and he's like, we need to continue doing recruitment of MSM for this particular study. And so we we're having issues in this area because there's still a lot of stigma around the behavior, but also around HIV infection and that kind of thing. I would go to certain events to recruit men and young men. And in some settings, it's great. They're like, oh, this is the auntie. Or I would always preface to say, I am a nurse. For some or many, a level of comfortability comes with my profession. Absolutely. So people are more receptive if they hear, okay, health practitioner specifically, as opposed to academic researcher. Oh, yeah. Academic researchers exploit. Right. And I think also nursing as a profession is still one of the most trusted professions in the U.S. I would leave with that in some cases, and it would make these men very receptive to filling out the survey or having a conversation. Then I was at one community-based organization that's focused almost exclusively with Black men, SS with men, and Black trans individuals. And to sit there, some of them would come and they just chat and talk about the nursing profession and something that they're considering. And then I've been in spaces where they're just like, who is that? I'm not approaching that person. And so one of my mentees is of the community. I have him do a lot of the recruitment. So I come to a point where I'm, again, having cultural humility to understand that even though I feel like I can engage with different people of different ages, wherever they're coming from, but some of these men, they're coming from a lot of trauma. And for some, there's uncomfortability speaking to someone who looks like their mother or speaking to someone who looks like their auntie, someone who could be their sister. There's uncomfortability with that because they're still coming to terms with who they are. When I was in high school, we talked about AIDS. HIV comes a little bit later than, okay, STDs. And you would think with the amount of education that has since happened over the last like 30 years that today's young people, so millennials and Generation Z, would be so well equipped with the knowledge that we have around how things are communicable. Why particularly amongst young people and women of color, so Black and Latinx women, have these high rates. Still, we have education, but what's happening? There seems to be like a disconnect. Really Black communities, they have this idea that HIV is mainly among women, and that's not true. Over 80% of new diagnoses of HIV are among males or people assigned male at birth, and that's including trans women. That needs to be understood. Disease we mainly see among males. Particularly when we look at females, I'm going to switch now to biological sex. I want to be mindful of these gender constructs that we have going on because there's a biological susceptibility to HIV that needs to be understood. For females, when we're talking about HIV and rates of HIV infection, we're talking about maybe about 20% of people contracting HIV are female. And we know that some of the susceptibility is just simply the way gender norms get played out. For Black people in general, for people in general, a lot of it has to do with context of people's lives and the fact that in the Western world, we are sexual in one way, but we don't like to talk about sexual health. Females, the mucosal lining of the vagina is very susceptible to HIV infection. It's transmitted very easily. So it's very easy for a male to transmit to a female very difficult for females to infect a male partner. When it comes to men as sex with men, it's really because anal sex or anal penetration is the most efficient way of transmitting HIV. There's no other orifice that transmits. 
at that level. So when we look at females, we see that there can be a dual risk because of the mucosal lining of the vagina. And then when it comes to anal penetration, women are always the receptive partner in that regard. Therefore, her vulnerability is much higher. So even when it comes to men who have sex with men, the one being penetrated is at much higher vulnerability than the one who is doing the penetrating. That I'm mind blown right now. Okay. I never really put those things together. I knew about the science around the vagina. I know about the biology around the anus. So it got me thinking, right? You can have two MSMs. Mm -hmm. And now correct me in terms of my own naivete or ignorance. You can have the person who might be HIV positive who is the receiver, Mm -hmm. but if the other partner who's doing the penetrating might be on antiviral meds Mm -hmm. or is not infected, there's nothing for him to transmit. Right. So when we're talking about sexual health and education, maybe people don't really understand that. Or maybe people do, or if you don't have those kinds of conversations with your sexual partner... Exactly. It's really thinking on those terms. But no one thinks like that in the moment. No, that's the thing about sexual health and sexual wellness. And that's why I'm moving in that direction. And there's some folks who have always been there. Right. The fact that we separate out HIV from other STIs is problematic because HIV is an STI. And we know that if someone keeps having recurring STIs, that what we see in the literature and epidemiology is that eventually you see HIV. You have communities of people where people are not on antiretroviral therapies and who are living with HIV. The transmission happens much more frequently. I don't know if you've heard or any of your listeners have heard of you equals you. So it's undetectable equals untransmittable. If you're on antiretroviral therapy and you're partnered with someone who's not living with HIV, if your viral load is undetectable, you're untransmittable. From the research standpoint that I'm coming from, the kicker for me is that the research behind U equals U was done with couples Hmm. globally. Can you explain the methodology a bit? Doing these longitudinal random control trials with couples across the globe and looking to see what happens when you have couples who are serodiscoordinate, meaning one person's living with HIV, the other person isn't, that person living with HIV is on antiretrovirals. That's how we know it works because the research itself was done on couples. But for some reason, we have issues with putting that into programmatic practice. I have my conspiracy theories around that. But for some reason, we're having a hard time with that becoming routinized practice in the United States and globally. Why is that, though, if it's showing that it's effective in terms of minimizing the rates of transmission and presuming that people are remaining monogamous? Getting back to the health education again, folks have this idea, well, I'm monogamous. The conspiracy theorist in me thinks this has to do with our Western way of thinking, that everything is very individualized, that it's all about me. And this is not to knock anybody who thinks in this way, but they're like, I'm monogamous and I don't do this and I don't do that. So I'm not vulnerable to HIV infection. But what is your partner doing? And the challenge of being mindful of how we have this conversation with women without putting fear in them. I did a talk recently and one of the young women came up to me and she's like, I'm afraid that was not my intention to scare you, is to empower you. You now have information, but she was like, I'm afraid for herself and just questioning her partner and all this other stuff. And I don't know if it's the way women have been made to think about how to question their partners. We're on this road together. We're supposed to be having this relationship. 
then we should be open about certain information. And we have to be comfortable with ourselves to have those conversations, not only with our partner, but really with ourselves. What are some of the hard questions women need to ask themselves? How comfortable are we with our sexuality? How comfortable are we with not placing judgment on ourselves? How okay are we with not shaming ourselves? In committed relationships, being open enough with your partner to have certain conversations. Women shouldn't be finding out during pregnancy, she's having her first child and finding out she's pregnant and living with HIV at the same time. How is that happening? Right. And then her concern for her unborn. Yeah. And usually that's the first time they'll get on treatment once they find out they're pregnant, particularly in the southeastern part of the United States. Mm. You know, over 50 percent of HIV infections are in this part of the country. That's not coincidence. When we think about pop culture discourse around sexuality and sexual behaviors amongst people of color, no one's talking about the institution of marriage. People might be talking about coupling, but then the coupling is very fluid. You have females talking about, no, I'm in threesomes with other females and say there's a male partner in the mix. So when we see that as part of our culture, it's a part of our music, it's part of our imagery, right? Where even our music being in strip clubs, the music videos kind of showing girl on girl action, for example, and fetishizing of those sort of sexual behaviors promoted by these males, i.e. rappers in these videos, right? It's part of a culture that makes it so complicated for young people to have these conversations in general. I went to an STD conference. Yes, they have one of those every two years. And there was a young woman there, a Black woman. She was talking about polygamous unions. You know, there's a culture around that. And there's different polygamous unions. There's polyamory. I think that there is something that we can learn from that. And I'm more so thinking about what I've read around polygamous unions between Sub-Saharan Africa and contemporary, how does that look? Instead of having the U.S. side piece, there's the second wife. Again, getting into that institution of marriage. Like, yeah, I'm married to my three wives. And my first wife helped me choose the other two. And when you speak to some of these women, it's kind of like, yeah, I have someone there who's going to be taking care of my kids because this is a family. That's what we're doing. While I'm off in England doing my studies, you know, she's back here taking care of my two kids. So I think that there's something to learn as Western women. It may make us a little bit uncomfortable, but we can start looking at some history and historically in different cultures. How have they navigated this? What does it mean to be married? People are talking about these unions, whether they're between a dyad or multiple people. Of course, it's not to judge anyone, but again, what are the conversations that are being had around that? What are you talking about? Are there rules and regulations? One of the other areas that I study is that of sexual agreements or relationship agreements. Marriage is supposed to afford some laws some rules when it comes to relationships. However, we know our stats here in the United States, and even for people who are not married but are are in couples or wanting to include a third person or a fourth person or whatever, or people who have fluid sexuality, what are the rules for yourself? I always go to the self. For yourself, what are you allowing and not allowing? What makes you feel comfortable? But also with the person that you are involved with. And what I see a lot too, particularly among MSM, but also in some other populations as well, in research we use the term main partner, and then we use casual partners or other partners. But I'm starting to think, or we think, is casual partner the right term? particularly if these other partners mean something. 
we have to start thinking and rethinking about the language that we use to describe people's behaviors. And the ultimate goal for me is how do we promote safety? And the other side to safety, because we always use this very negative framework is what does the resilient framework look like? For me, it's about sexual wellness. At the end of the day, is, is this pleasurable for you? Is there consent in this process? You know, is everyone on board and on the same page, right? So it's not just about the sex act itself. It's about what is the context in which this is happening? Get it, get it. Act three, where we land. You have dropped so many gems of information and knowledge. The ways in which you have been able to share with our listeners about not only your individual journey through all of this, but just the importance around sexual health and even just health overall of one's mind and of one's body. If you have lasting thoughts or advice or things that you want to be able to share that might inspire our listeners on their own journeys, I'd love for you to bless us with those. One of the things I'm trying to become more informed of is the trauma around our sexuality as Black people in the Americas, how we've always had to be performative in some way, how we've always had to be of some industrial service, whether it's churning out children or slavery, you know, for slavery, Mm. blame. Black young folks kind of just ragging on their parents or ragging on our ancestors. And it's like, you have no idea what it takes to keep us sane in this space and place. We're still dealing with this collective trauma. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind, not being afraid to connect every level of work or every discipline and sphere to who who we are as people, whether you're in the financial field or the legal field because of the way racism operates in this world. Not just in the Americas, we see it places in Asia, the Rohingya. These are Black people in Asia being exterminated. The police-sanctioned violence is going on in Brazil right now is against Black people. Realizing there's a collective the longer that we are living and having different experiences, we're able to see just systematically what's happening and how this gets played out. And the other thing too, I would say in terms of takeaways is again, regarding sexual health promotion and what that means for you. Being self-aware, and I know that's also a life course project, right? It's not just one moment. And so think of yourself as ever growing. And that can mean many different things. Certain things may be difficult, but also just being open. Sometimes we get caught up in tradition and it's important to hold on to certain traditions because we were alive because of it. But then just thinking about how can I add to this in this time and space? And on that note, can I share a quote that really resonates well with me? And I want to share with you and our listeners, and it goes like this. What matters isn't that we attain perfection, but that again and again, with humility and faith, we reach. Thank you so much, Dr. Natalie LeBlanc, for talking about the ways in which you reach and support our communities, not just here in the U.S., but also our African-descended communities, even on the continent, around issues related to our health and well-being. Appreciate you and the knowledge that you shared with us. 
today. Thank you. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.